This is Lekka. I'm Lucy Dearlove. I don't know if it's an after effect of the publishing industry dealing with two years of lockdowns or some other reason, but there's been an avalanche of incredible books published recently, and particularly books of personal and memoir writing related to food. But what does it mean to write a food memoir or to be an author of personal food writing in 2022? This month, I've got three episodes lined up for you. Interviews with the writers of some of my favourite food writing of recent times, beginning with this one. It's just such an exposing thing, I think, with memoir writing. I was in denial about memoir until I started writing and then I realised that like memoir was a really big aspect of it and drawing on life. Part of yourself is out there and other people know so much about you. To do that, you have to be able to write about yourself in some way, and that is really hard. When my brother read it, he was just saying like, oh, this is just like a fraction. This is like the PG-friendly version. I wanted to give that attention, that intellectual attention that I've been given so long to literature, to cooking. You have to be your own type of freaky clown. (laughs) (laughs) You kind of, you do. On this episode, Angela Hoy and Rebecca Mae Johnson. Angela Hoy and Rebecca Mae Johnson are responsible for two of my favourite books of the year. Angela's book Takeaway is a memoir based on her experiences growing up in her family's Chinese takeaway in the Welsh Valleys. And Rebecca's book Small Fires is an electrifying, innovative memoir where she rewrites the kitchen as a vital source of knowledge and revelation. I was with Angela and Rebecca a few months ago and they started talking to each other about the writing of their books and I rudely interrupted them to ask if they'd be up for postponing the conversation so I could record it for Lekka. They very generously agreed and so a few weeks ago Angela and I got the train to Harwich to where Rebecca lives and recorded it. Just to mention before we start, if you haven't read one or both of the books and you're planning to, there is some discussion of key events and kind of sections in the books. So if you prefer to be spoiler free, then I recommend you read before listening to this. And also a content note, there is some mention in passing uh, of domestic abuse and gambling addiction, as well as racism, as these are themes present in Angela's book. I started by asking both Angela and Rebecca if they had read any personal or memoir writing centred around food while writing their books or beforehand, and what impact it had left on them. I don't know, I'm trying to think. Um, At at the end of my book, I wrote a, a reading list, which I thought really helped us to kind of, just like the research that I did throughout, and I feel like, I felt like it was just more as a way of like respecting others like this is what I read and it was almost like acknowledging those that came before me that also helped Uh, I'm gonna have a little look like who I wrote now Um, but it was just when I wrote this it was like during lockdown so um, I was reading a lot more on like anti-Asian hate crime and um, and just reading up on like East and Southeast Asian authors and yeah I read a lot of um like Kathy Park Hong, like it was like part memoir, part poetry, 
but a lot of the stuff like resonated. I mean, I make a lot of citations in the book. At the end, I have works referenced in order of their appearance, but most of them are not food books. But mm. I guess, yeah, I don't know. Um, <laughs> let me think about this. Let me think about this. Yeah, I'm um, trying to think, like, thinking of memoirs. Yeah. Your answers to that was like non-food. Yeah. I mean, I've enjoyed stuff in the past, like you know Elizabeth David's essays and stuff. But actually, I don't even cite her in this book at all. But a memoir that I read in the year before writing the book was Audrey Lord's book, Sammy, mm. which isn't specifically a food memoir. It's about growing up in Harlem in the 30s and the 40s as a black child in a very raci- racially segregated environment. And that obviously doesn't relate to my personal biography at all, but there's an amazing use of food in the book as a way of telling you about her life, about the political situation at the time her relationship with her mother, um, pleasure, so much about pleasure and sex in that book that's to do with food and the kind of ways that food breaks down boundaries between different categories of life in Audrey Lorde's book I thought was very interesting and inspiring and helpful. Yeah, but you write about a picnic, right, that she goes on with her family yeah, exactly. I mean, there's so many good food points in the book, but this one really kind of crystallises so much of what their family was going through at the time, which, like, they were going on a family trip to Washington that she was really, really excited about. Her mum knew that they were going to be discriminated against, that they were not going to be able to go into some of the nice places because of racial segregation. So she made this incredibly elaborate and beautiful picnic that kind of was like a way of attending to and respecting and loving every single part of her family's body and their life. And it was just, it's just so moving. And, and when they got there, they, they couldn't go to the ice cream parlor and they got made to leave by the white waitress. And, um, but they didn't miss out on any pleasure in that day. Well, her, her mum did everything that she could to make mean that they didn't by, um, by making this beautiful picnic. Mm. Yeah. So yeah, that's not like, I'm white, obviously, and I didn't grow up in that situation. But the the way in which Lord weaves weaves through food through her memoir, I found very interesting and inspiring. Mm. For me as well, actually, I don't think I cite it in the book, but there's this um, social theorist called Luce Giard, who was part of a big project called The Practice of Everyday Life from, I think, the late 70s in France, led by this sociologist called Michel de Certeau. I first encountered that work through meeting my partner, who's a social scientist. Mm. And I kind of was rifling through the book and it it had this whole section on cooking and doing. So there's long passages and it's like a real huge social study of France in the late 70s and early 80s, I think. And um, big studies of like food shopping practices and looking at things like that as a way of understanding society on a broader basis and from the microcosm of that. And there's one very poetic passage that Giard wrote about how culinary knowledge is passed through generations, specifically of women. Mm. And it's something incredibly romantic about it, sort of the the gesture of your hand and I will on your life through this gesture, through reenacting these gestures. However, I won't inherit 
the servitudes that you suffered. I, will, I don't want to inherit the servitudes that you suffered, but I do want to inherit these beautiful gestures of cooking with your hands, this knowledge that's held in the body. And reading that theory was, it was so exciting and made me think about the richness of the knowledge that's carried in the body and how that's part of biography. So that's not, I guess, food memoir in, in a traditional sense, but it, it helped me understand mm. what I could do with writing about food mm. or like how I could try and take it seriously. I didn't realise when writing the book there was just so much research. I think I read more than like actually writing, researching other people's. Right. Like, I think I read like um, similar food memoirs. I think it was like Olivia Potts's. Like, oh, yeah. um, what was her book? It was the um, when she... Oh, a Half-Baked Idea. Yes, yes, that was it. Yeah. Half-Baked Idea and like Felicity Cloak's like One More Croissant for the Road. Like similar formats where they had recipes for our and Dolly Alderton book as well, which had like recipes and it breaks it up in between. Mm. But again, it was like slightly different, I would say. It's not exactly like food, well, other than Olivia's one. But it was interesting, like you said, it's similar to you, how reading other work that wasn't exactly food that influenced you. I also read um, Ocean Vong's On Earth, mm. We Are Briefly Gorgeous, which is about um, him like, finding his you know sexuality and living in, um, I don't know where he lived, it was like in the middle of nowhere, essentially, like similar upbringing, like almost like the Midwest where it's like there's not much going on and you feel the same kind of resonate, like you resonate with the same thing. Yeah, in a way, I think sometimes the category food writing is like a false hmm. uh, category in a sense yeah, because it's writing and it's in dialogue with so many other forms of literature and writing and... Um, I don't know, somehow just food writing is, is almost inadequate as a, mm, as a category. Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah. and also somehow depoliticizes sometimes. Well, I, I write a bit about this in my book as well, but you know, like Angela's book is so political in what it does yeah. and its impact. And you know, it's funny and lively and, and all those things as well and, and, and compelling, etc. But it's also a profoundly... Uh, political book about you know migration and, and racism and, and you know so much stuff mm. and language and understanding and yeah I kind of feel I like feel, every, yeah, I feel I, like everyone should no, read it like, I feel the same with your book it's like even though food is our books are food books but mm. I feel like food is also like an afterthought it's like there's so many other aspects yeah. of it with yours it was also trying to fight like as a coming of age as well both our books yeah. are coming of age but yeah. you're our different periods of time yeah. I feel like you with yours like I said a bit before but like, about you in Berlin just trying to find <laughs> yourself changing your exterior to try and fit in and you know different surroundings and um, you talk about outfits as well yeah like I feel like that's where I really resonated with your mm -hmm. book it was very much um changing who you are to try and fit in uh, trying to fit into like society and not really ever being happy with yourself and finding yourself um, and then just food just so happens to be part of it as well I think yeah. and actually in, in different ways as well we we both write a lot about labor mm. you know different types of work and thinking about that work and the role of that work and how that work is valued or not valued or seen or not seen and stuff which you know again like that's also I think part of the political aspect of significantly a, huge huge intervention that your book makes into how British society understands itself is bearing witness to that labor mm. and what it really means and what it really takes yeah I mean I I grew up in a rural place and 
well, she, I didn't really, sadly, we didn't have access to a Chinese um, takeaway because it's nothing close enough. Mm. But, um, but, you know, like, as you say, there's like, there's the counter mm. and then there's everything that goes on behind it. And it's a story that is just not told enough. Mm. And mm. it's just like, it's a real space of heroic acts of labour on behalf of your parents and you and like it's just incredible it's like a really dramatic space as well like so much of life and so much knowledge and so much you know it's just incredible yeah Yeah. I mean it's the same with you it was like you when you write about how you worked in a fish and chip shop I mean probably the most perfect passage about how you're Savloys and comparing that to like eating it was like um the odds and ends basically and how it was just like the entrails of everything mm-hmm. but like it just shows the like it's a similar sense where working in these type of environments and spaces that aren't given as much day of light and the stories that aren't really told through that and I loved the you know, is working in like every, like the everyday situations that people often yeah. oversee. Because I'm writing about cooking in my twenties as a student. I mean, because I did a PhD, I was a student for a really long time. But um, just moving house a lot. I guess yeah, thinking about just domestic labour as well. Mm. And like, I think a lot of people struggle to value the work that they do in domestic space and mm. think about it as interesting and funny and knowledgeable and. Even my mum, like my mum's a great cook and that's a real space in which she speaks in a way through her cooking. But she always plays it down, you know, always. And she won't even claim her own knowledge sometimes. And she shies away from that. And, oh, I just did this. Oh, it wasn't really that, you know. And there's always this minimising of that work. And I just really wanted to expand, you know, give pages and pages to that to that to those everyday acts of thinking and, mm. and working in the kitchen. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's one of the kind of parallels between your book, both your books that occurred to me is that the crossing of that boundary between the domestic and the outside world. So mm. I think um, in your book, Rebecca, I really loved how cooking was written about alongside fashion, alongside art, alongside mm. clubbing, alongside mm-hmm. sex. Like, I think it doesn't often get considered in those in, in that position. And I think... Yeah, and even like for you, Angela, the like physical boundary of the counter, like a lot of people just would never consider what goes on behind that. Like that's a very like it's a really like nice metaphorical and like actual boundary that it like the domestic is also like there was no line for you. Like that was it was very blurred between like domestic and business and and food. Um yeah. So I think it's yeah, it's interesting. One of the first questions I had to, I had to ask you both was um, what were the similarities you thought bet- between your books? But like it's come up naturally because there are so many parallels. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Like on the surface of it, they might seem like quite different books, but there's actually a lot in common. Um, mm. So did you both know when you were writing that it was a coming of age book? Um, well, I feel like it's natural because it's been all my life. So it is just writing my life, and it was throughout all my childhood. Um, you know, I was born in Wales and I uh, started working when I was eight. And when I was a baby, my mum would just put me in a chip box under the pantry in like this, under the stairs, there's like a little pantry where we had like metal stacks of, you know, like there was like eggs and flour and sugar, everything we need. And um, there was like a little like shutter. So I don't know how I slept because it's like right next to the extractor fan. So my mum would just check in on me every now and then. 
Um, so yeah, as a baby, I was like in a trip box and I would run around. And um, so I feel like it was just a natural, I had to be kind of a coming of age because there was so much, well, it was so much, uh, it was such my life essentially up until, when was it? Up until like I was 26, pretty much. So it was like such a big portion of it. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I feel like it just came to me naturally, I think. Yeah. I was very resistant to that. Uh, for ages even mm. the even the word memoir was something I really resisted a lot why my, my publisher tried really hard to get it in the title oh. and I didn't let them <laughs> <laughs> because you know for commercial reasons mm. like I think that you know epic is like what is an epic um <laughs> because I guess oh, I don't know I, probably because I did it spent too long at university but mm. <laughs> no not really I, I, anyway but um I guess I thought of it as like an intellectual pursuit at first. You know, it took me ages to um, think about what the book was going to be. Mm. It's very, I guess, it's quite a strange book in some ways. Like, the the it's not chronological. Mm-hmm. What is the logic behind the chapter progression? <laughs> <laughs> it just sort of emerged. But it's not. But the the progression is maybe more to do with gestures or feelings or thought, like the movement of different thoughts, rather than so the, the rather than my life. So so the 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 book is not bound to my my biography chronologically at okay. all. When I was thinking about the book, I was like, you know, I want to give this intellect because you know I wanted to draw on my PhD studies and I wanted to give that attention that intellectual attention that I've been given so long to literature to cooking and I think I thought oh you know my life why is my life relevant or interesting to this in a way even though all of the knowledge that I had and that I wanted to write about really came out of cooking myself (laughs) but I didn't want me to be the focus and in a way although I there is memoir in the book it's not about me in a really intense way Mm -hmm. like as a person I feel like I use myself as a way to explore ideas but I didn't I use the I'm gonna sound like a knob now (laughs) (laughs) I use the I as in the pronoun I as a space of exploring these ideas and asking these questions rather than being confessional my book is not confessional Mm. really and actually, I do think I remain at a distance in the book, ultimately. I felt that too. Like, yeah. I felt like when I was reading about you and your life, mm. but it just didn't feel like, oh, this is all about me and my story and my life. But it also felt like it was everyone's eye, if that made sense. Interesting, yeah. Yeah, I wanted, and like, people, other people who aren't me are also not named. Mm. So everyone yeah. who's not me, yeah. everyone who's not I is you. That was very purposeful because I wanted there not to be a hierarchy of relationships in the book. Because one of the things I wanted to express about cooking and food, something that I found out through living, so I guess that's the memoir aspect of it, is that there is an erotics and an intimacy, an an erotic and an intimate dimension to food and cooking for all people, whoever Mm. they are, those sort of frissons, those moments wanting to sate the desire of someone, you know, that's very intimate. Wanting to make someone feel pleasure, that's very intimate. Yeah. And I think 
significantly, we often try to exclude the, the sort of the erotic and the intimate from from how we talk about food and because it's almost too much, you know, to, it's almost feels inappropriate. But of course, we're taking something from outside ourselves and putting it in our body. <laughs> now, what other context does that take place? Mm. I mean, it depends on your preferences, obviously, but, you know, <laughs> often in a sexual context. And so it's not to make it sort of weird or pervy or whatever, although I think there are some slightly horny moments in the book. That's fine. <laughs> but But it's more like I wanted to to sort of desanitize that aspect of what food is about in in one's life yeah which mm-hmm. it is part of lots of moments of physical you know personal difficulty or you know desire and discovery and all those things and so in that sense I draw on memoir I draw on lived experience to ask these questions so I guess I'm like taking the methods that I was trained in from doing a PhD and then I'm taking it into the kitchen mm-hmm. And because of that, I guess because I thought that at the beginning, I struggled to think of it as memoir. But now I've come to a completely, I've made my peace with the idea of memoir and I see it as a really important tool for thinking. Mm. And, and no, Angela's book has so many moments of of theorising and thinking in it, drawing on everyday life yeah. as well. Yeah. And yeah. And did you find it, I mean, I think what struck me about um, I think especially your book, Angela, is like writing from the point of view of your younger self. Mm. Um, how did it feel to kind of revisit that self? Um, I think like a few people have asked. I was like, a lot of people say book writing is very therapeutic, which it is in a sense, but it was really traumatic, I thought, because it's such a personal thing. And there's things I never really talked about with anyone else, like mm. domestic abuse or my dad's gambling and, you know, having a very dysfunctional family and all these self-identity worries and um just you know worrying about um like what others would perceive of me um and it just really sent me into like anxiety like madness Mm. and then afterwards I had to get therapy after book writing I think I was really worried about what other people would say like I know my a lot of my family members especially in Asian culture it's very like in Asian culture it's much everyone keeps to themselves they don't talk about certain things it's very taboo and especially topics like these um a lot of people would shy away from and you know even my aunties who've like said about the book afterwards they're like oh why have you written this book like (laughs) and I think when I told my parents when I wrote I'm I'm writing a book the first uh thing they said like why are you writing a book on us like it's not we're not interesting in any way but yeah, I mean, that's the, their feeling that yeah. what you've just expressed there is the fact that you've gone and done it is also what's one part of what's so significant about it. Yeah, mm. I, th- I think what really shocked me is just so many people that resonated with it. Mm. And then um, obviously, like, this is very much my life, but it also resonates with so many of the takeaway kids, but not just takeaway kids, but people who grew up in pubs or people who worked in fish and chips or grew up in fish and chips or never really had a childhood that was kind of robbed of them. They all kind of resonate. And, um, yeah, it's just really, I don't know, I'm trying to think of the words. It's so say, always yeah. very brave. Um, I mean, I would, I would say, I don't know, at the time of writing, I didn't feel like I was very brave. I just felt like I was almost like writing a diary, a diary that I never really kept before when working. I think someone asked me before asking, like, did you ever keep a diary when you're working the take when I never did? Because when's the time? I didn't have time. You're trying to do your homework. (laughs) I was doing my homework and it was almost um, 
like throughout childhood you're kind of living through trauma and you just have to deal with it and this is it and you'd never really acknowledge it and until a couple of years later when we sold the shop in 2018 you kind of reevaluate and you really miss the time like the, you get really nostalgic of the shop and having the shop was almost like the sixth family member because you put the shop before your own needs you know you'd always prep work you wake up go to wholesalers and buy ingredients and you'd always be back before work for uh, be back at home at 5 p.m for work mm. um and then when we sold the shop it was just trying to reconfigure like who we are in our lives and try to figure out our own paths and I felt like that's what really kind of made me want to write the book in the first place it was trying to uh, first of all obviously like document this really unique but strange <laughs> Um, experience in life uh, growing up in a Chinese takeaway um, but also yeah just trying to put it to pen to form, like for I think it. yeah understand it um, because I feel like a lot of people who grew up in that environment never really had the chance to they're like oh yeah that actually did happen to us like you, you don't realize when you're actually living it and working within it I think yeah by making that narrative you've given people the space you've made a space in which people can have those conversations with themselves and yeah think and reflect and, and from the other side like I'm white we're similar in age I, I remember as well the casual horrible racism of that period mm. and it's such an important thing and, and, and brave thing and you know it's so that you've documented it's awful that you ever had to to do it or experience it from the other side and you know everyone should every fucking white person in the UK should read that oh because God. you know it, it's just it was just everywhere mm. you know and and still well it, it things like Little Britain I guess that kind of horrible strain mm. of humor kind of goes on in some kind of places so but like, normalized like, it was so normalized yeah. like there was so much I mean, that period of time was so fucking weird mm. politically. Like, I mean, on a different note, like I wrote very briefly about in my book um, mm. what not to wear. Yeah, oh, and I, I I went back on I went on YouTube and watched some old episodes, and, I, and the absolute mm. violence of the language that they used to the people's bodies that they had on the show. Yeah, like the, the heinous mm. fat phobia and hatred. Of, we just internalized it, and that was the norm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it was so. It was such a popular TV show. I remember being like with my, you know, talking about it with my school friends and it's yeah. like, oh, I'm, I'm like this, therefore I can't wear that mm. or do that or whatever. It was only reading that in your book that I was like, oh my God. You should, yeah, you should go, go and watch some old episodes on YouTube. It's like, what the, <laughs> what the hell? And also for people, I imagine for people who also experienced it, like having it laid out there like that, mm. it, it must, I don't know, it must be really helpful. Yeah, um, like... Like I think it was very therapeutic in the sense where you address a lot of the racism that's not really talked about, but again, it just like internalized a lot of it where you just feel like, oh, this is just part and parcel of the job. Like you just have to deal with it. And um, my brother posted about the book because he'd finally read it, <laughs> even though he's like read he'd read like some first drafts, but not like from start to finish. And he made a post about it, and it made me cry so much. And I was like on the tube reading it, and obviously it's told from my perspective. And even though he, they were like my early colleagues, so they worked in the kitchen as well as front of house as well. And they obviously deal with the racism as well. But he said that, you know, I never realised that you were very sexualized as well as a young age because you're you're on the front lines and the counter. You're dealing with all these like drunk customers and you're asking these like old 
60-year-old, 70-year-old man asking you to marry you, like a 12-year-old girl, and it's, it's quite fucked up. Sorry, am I allowed to swear? Yeah. It's great, I'm going to swear some more. Then. <laughs> um, and yeah, it's just really messed up time that you you never really think to re-examine. Then when you look back on it, and you're writing it and you're faced with it again, you're like, oh my God, like, did I really do, like, I can't believe I just brushed it off. I can't believe I didn't say anything then. I think I was such a shy, awkward kid and I think it didn't help either being one of the very few Asian families in... Well, it's implicitly with, dangerous. Yeah, like, it's, yeah. it, it's well, and explicitly, as you write about on the book, to stick up for yourself was something that could cause mm. danger to you, physical and other t- types of danger. Like, it was very threatening. It's a very threatening situation. As a 12-year-old, you shouldn't have to be addressing the racism mm. of, of, or and, and sexualization of an, of an older person mm. like it's a totally unequal distribution of power like there's no mm. way you could have done there's no, nothing you, you know that's so interesting though that like even though obviously you had very similar experiences mm. to your brothers there's obviously just like mm. parts of each other's stories that you never like witnessed or talked about yeah it must have been yeah. like quite traumatic to relive those <laughs> yeah but in a way I'm like I'm I was debating for ages whether to include certain details like the rate like a lot of the racism and some of our very, very personal problem family problems and you know I spoke to my uh partner and some family members as well saying like I don't know whether to include these things. Like, I never even talked to my parents about certain things because, again, in Asian culture, we just don't talk about feelings. We don't talk about how we're feeling. We don't talk about mental health. Like, those things don't really exist. And um, I was, yeah, I was debating whether to write it. And um, my partner said, like, if you're not writing these things, I don't think you're kind of writing your, like, authentic self in a way. You're kind of sugarcoating the actual experience of it. You couldn't say it, so you have to write it. Yeah, I feel like that's how it was, really. You had to just write. It was almost like word vomiting on a page, and this is what the result is. And, um, yeah, I don't know. I feel like some people even asked, they were like, is this actually a true story or is it dramatised? I'm like, no, these... These things actually probably happened. even more dramatic if you told them everything. Yeah, and like this is, and I, I, I told my when well, my mum like saw, you know, well she had, they, my parents haven't read it because they can't speak English or read English. Um, but when my brother read it, he was just saying like, oh, this is just like a fraction. This is like the PG friendly version. Like the stuff outside of the book is like even worse. I feel like I've just kind of filtered out a lot of the worse, like the even worse stuff. Or like it's a bit more palatable for people I feel. but um yeah I just yeah but how was it for you Rebecca for your book writing I want to know because you said you went to therapy afterwards too. no before was it before yeah I, I was struggling to start the book and I got um I got um a grant from the Society of mm. Authors to help to sort of a work in progress grant to help support the writing and um I used that to start some of that to start therapy which is great because then the well the week I started therapy I was able to start writing <laughs> having not been able to but I think it unrele- it released something mm. and what I said about being in denial about memoir like I was in denial about memoir until I started writing and then I realized that like memoir was a really big aspect of it and drawing on life mm. and but to do that you have to be able to write about yourself in some way and mm. that is really hard and to contemplate yourself at different points in time and mm. what you were feeling or the difficulties you're going through and so whilst it's not confessional I suppose I'm still writing about things I'm doing at different times sometimes I teach creative 
writing and I, I said to students um, recently you know you can't just write a book that your parents would approve of mm. because then what would be in it <laughs> like nothing <laughs> it would be like a weird sanitized fairy tale fairy tale do you know what I mean um because that's you know obviously parents want everything to be okay for their kids and they or they they don't want anyway whatever so you know even just writing about things like sex sexuality horniness my gender like I write quite a lot about my uh feelings uh about my own gender mm. quite early in the book there's a real like very early very mm. early in the book like yeah. <laughs> straight in there and I wrote you know in quite an erotic way writing about apron wearing but um also bringing in sort of some gender theory that I read early in my 20s that made a big impact on me and and feelings about that kind of stuff so that's yeah writing about gender and sexuality things like that in my life and other points when I've been depressed or had fatigue. Um, towards the end of the book, I write a lot about I write about having fatigue and sort of not being able to get up or do anything. And mm-hmm. I didn't want to, and yeah, someone was saying they were surprised at how much like at the end of the book and that one of the, sort of the final big chapter, I write a lot about not cooking and being on the sofa and feeling crap and like hating what I'm cooking and just sort of, not being interested in it and and I wanted to keep the difficulty in the text mm. I didn't want to have a falsely sanitized impression of happy cooking the happy cook all the mm. time because that isn't the case and yeah I wanted to present the complexity of of cooking in such as I had encountered it and that includes being totally unable to cook when I have fatigue when I have fatigue which I get periodically I can't do anything mm. just have to like I, I lose uh cognitive function I just have to like lie down or watch tv or something I can't really walk around like anything like that yeah I wanted to include that stuff as well and that was I guess that was a real decision um yeah I don't know not to pretend that things are different to what they were <laughs> no but I think it's just such an exposing thing I think with memoir yeah. writing yeah. it's such a like that's the sort of thing I'm still trying to wrap my head around it's the exposing thing because it's such a raw thing you part of yourself is out there and other people know so much about you that's yeah. the thing that really and it's like looking me. in the mirror and seeing all the difficult things about yourself and not keeping the shitty things about yourself off the page mm. and like it's hard because usually if you're given an account of yourself to someone in casual conversation or you meet for the first time or mm. on your CV or in a job application or whenever on in other occasions you make a sort of image of yourself, you exclude all that all that crap usually. Yeah, you self-edit. You self, exactly. Yeah. And um, one of the nicest things that someone said who read the, an early copy of the book was that it made them feel okay about not, not cooking mm. and they it felt it gave them space to not want to cook because people don't have to cook if they don't want yeah, to. Absolutely. I didn't want to write this, some evangelizing, evangelizing text about cooking. Like I wanted to document its richness, but I also wanted to document that it is work and that it's mm. difficult and you can't mm. always do it. And, and you might also feel shit about doing it and, and, and hate your own meals sometimes and, and everything like that, because yeah, that, you don't have to pretend it's great all the time. Yeah. Like, like, <laughs> I love that as well with like that's another like similarities in our book Mm. I felt was just food isn't always like oh this bringing together happiness you know bundle of joy it was also like food is also very painful and 
uh, thing that you kind of reject, you don't even want at times. Um, and I remember there was like one argument that I have with my dad, and he's trying to make it up for me through one of my favorite foods, steamed egg. And I was just like, how do I accept this food when we just had this massive argument? And I, I don't even really want it. It's like it's almost it's such a difficult moment in the book. Like, yeah, and you it's almost the same as you it's just like I don't even have the energy or the the same like when you're so fatigued and your food is the last thing on your mind yeah and, and you when you're physically unable to do it the amount of work and thinking that actually it requires is so evident mm. because you can't do it yeah, yeah yeah and it's suddenly and and then you realize as well how much people who do it all the time like you know my mum for example growing mm. up like how much minimizing there is of the work that is involved yeah and that's also the you know the mm. thing about the takeaway isn't it like yeah it's totally. for the consumer it's something of convenience mm. even like a minor delay in your delivery makes mm. people angry as mm. as you kind of account for in the yeah. book but on the other on the other side there's huge amounts of labor and shopping and, and child labor and, and everything you know <laughs> yeah. and it it's not there's nothing convenient about it mm. for those who are making it it's mm. huge I think one of the things that struck me about both of your books that felt quite different from I think a lot of food writing is like the focus on routine and repetition mm. and like doing the same things over and over again, cooking the same things over and over again, like whether by choice or necessity. I feel like a lot of food writing focuses on like the new or the novel. Um, was that like, I mean, obviously it was just a part of, it was a part and parcel of like the thing that you were writing about, but was that something you were conscious about? Um, I think I was too. Um because you know working in the takeaway it was very much like I said it was like a production line because you're dealing with work you know we had massive vats of egg fried rice so we had to like get through every day and it was just cooking the same thing again and again so you kind of lose joy out of it because it, you become disassociated with food um, because you kind of see it as like oh as a way of making money you lose the joy of it and I think that's why I kind of really fell out of love with food for such a long time and I wanted to come when I first started when I moved to London uh, to find my own way and have my own job I wanted to work in fashion because I was like the complete opposite end of food and I wanted to have a very like yeah very my own way and then realize I hate fashion <laughs> and it took me a really long time to kind of fall back in love with food again and to actually be okay with it I think there is like good and bad and like repetition and like cooking the same things again and again there's a lot of comfort in that as well how you know we always had fab like regardless of uh working in the shop and all the other things that we had to do prepping and making sure we went to like Chinese school and regular school as well and helping out and deliveries. Like my parents always made sure that we always had a, a great family meal, which mm. was such a big thing. And that was such a central pillar. And like, yeah, it didn't really matter that we always ate the same thing. And it was for you though. It wasn't for it the was, customers. Yeah. And it was just for us. It was a very sacred thing. And um, I sometimes I took those for granted thinking like, oh, I really don't want family meal. I don't want rice. I even specifically said to my mum, I was like, I want burger and chips or, you know, beans on toast like all my other white so friends. an escape did. from yeah. the routine. It seems like, like, um, what Lucy was saying about repetition and you were just mm. saying, like, you, you had no escape from it. Mm. You know, you had to come back to it on your own terms as, when you're older. Mm. When you'd had the opportunity to refuse it and to turn away from it for a period of time so you could 
come back to it yeah on your own terms yeah. and it wasn't something you had no choice about yeah I feel as I've grown up it's like almost like a fresh pair of eyes you're re-examining or like falling back in love with it and you again. have the freedom to choose yeah. it now yeah exactly rather than being forced on me um but yeah because obviously you have the residual expertise of that period mm. when it was forced on you but you're not having to do that work all the time yeah and um yeah, I feel like I do like look back on those like family meals with such fondness, yeah. and I really miss them. Like my mum and my dad made so much effort into just yeah. making this, you know, very um, elaborate. They would always make it over the top. Really? You know, it, there was only five of us, but they'd probably feed ten of us. You know, That's they'd so always nice. go above and beyond. And as a child, I just was such a brat, and I never really appreciated mm. that and everything that they did for us. Well. And I think that's what I wanted to include in the book was just like, uh, it's almost like fantasizing about that again as an adult when I reread it and uh, written it again, those family meals. Maybe you're experiencing what your parents are trying to do. Yeah, yeah. Um, just trying to make sure that we had, a, you know, had enough food to eat for one because my parents came from such um like troubled childhoods you know my mum growing up in the cultural revolution and my dad had a very scrappy childhood in hong kong um like dropping out of school since he was 13 so they always had you know they they both had never never enough to eat so it was always a priority to make sure that we were fed i mean I'd, but I'd you want... don't have to feel guilty about about uh, as a child because you're only a child yeah and it, it was also challenging yeah. from from what you write about in your book yeah i feel like i do feel a lot of other takeaway kids that I have spoken to mm. also feel that same guilt mm. where they all all felt like a brat they all felt like they were very um they all just felt they were very ungrateful they were just it's very harsh situation. to their parents yeah. they were just lashing out on their parents because of this environment that we're in and, you know, having to have the obligation, like you have to work, but you also mm. want to be obliged to help your family because yeah. this is your family. It's, 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 an, yeah. impossible, it's an impossible situation, <laughs> it though. And it's it's a structure, it's a systemic, you know, mm. the fact of it being so hard to survive financially and, and mm. migrating. And, you know, that it's from what you write about in your book, like those demands made it really hard for everyone. Mm. Yeah. And to have feelings and have a family and mm. show your care for people in that context is really hard. Yeah. yeah. What about routine and repetition for you, Rebecca? Like at the heart of the book, there's a there's a cooking, you know, this idea of cooking yeah. the same recipe over and over again. Yeah, I mean, I, it's interesting. I, I've also been thinking recently about that comment you made about um, the focus on novelty. Mm. And I think that is, that's a capitalist thing. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, literally, Marx writes about it in Capital. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah, that it always needs innovation to de- as a way of generating more more capital. In, you know, in, yeah. you know, on the whole, innovations, technological innovations, are a way of making either generating new sources of profit or making things more efficient, so mm-hmm. you can have greater. Yeah, of profit. course. Anyway, yeah. sorry, we don't need to go through that. But um, <laughs> no, it's, it's <laughs> definitely know. important <laughs> because actually, most people's cooking is quite most people's da- daily cooking mm. in, in the home is relatively repetitive. Yeah. And that is both very kind of grounding in a sense that it is something that you return to, that you help and through which you understand yourself over time through each each time you return to a dish over a long period of time, it becomes a way of engaging your mood or where, you know, so, so many different things 
because you you cook the same dish different ways depending on mm. what's going on and um yeah and um I became interested in the idea of of this recipe that I'd made I mean I say a thousand times who knows metaphorically a thousand times metaphorically mm. but definitely hundreds and hundreds and it 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 became this one recipe that I cooked over and over again became a kind of founding sort of grammar almost for all of my cooking it gave me a new understanding of cooking and which then became the basis of all cooking I did after that point so then I guess it was the basis of a language in that sense and if you think about you know all that happens in the hundreds of times that Angela's you know mum makes the same dish the thoughts she has the encounters the life that she sustains like Mm. everything that goes on like Mm. and again Angela has like blown up the takeaway to an to an epic narrative of of migration and coming of age and and identity and and parental love and difficulty and and racism and you know modern life you know and so in that repetition is is so much of life and forms of labor or that originate in the domestic like cooking like cleaning like so many of those things through you know um misogyny and and neo-colonialism and, and, and racism and so many things they get made to seem like less mm. in our culture but they're everything and they're so important for you with the like book writing process yeah like how did you feel about it the entire time I guess it's just in terms yeah. of obviously a lot of people ask like oh is it therapeutic for you but I guess like no, how really, did you even it's really hard to start like, yeah it's like, very intense mm. um I put myself under a lot of pressure, mm. as I think you did. I I struggled to start. I found it very intense. I had to take rests in between chapters. Mm. In fact, I actually got ill in between some chapters with fatigue and had to sort of like yeah. literally like lie down like a vegetable yeah. for like a week. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because it doesn't come from nowhere, does no, it? It's no. not like you're a machine. It's not like yeah. typing out. It's not like you're just typing stuff out. It, it's coming from you. Yeah. And... I think it's really important to have to to do the gestational labor of thinking in between writing. Yeah, that's the mm. writing too, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You've got to you've got to have space for your mind to drift and for ideas yeah. to ferment and all that. I did read one essay that really helped me begin writing, which was by a psychoanalyst and poet called Noir Alsadir. She just published a, a book of nonfiction called Animal Joy, and she wrote this essay that was published on LitHub about going to clown school. Wow. <laughs> Some kind of, yeah. I think Sasha Baron Cohen went to the same clown school, actually. <laughs> no way. But what was useful about it was the, about it, and they helped me be the sort of the bravery, well, not, to summon the courage, basically, mm. was about you have to be your own type of freaky clown. <laughs> <laughs> like, you kind of, you do. You, you do. know, like, if you oh, sorry, if you try to be the clown that's imagining the audience and how it wants to be pleased, mm. you'll write this strange fake book or fake. She's she's writing about poetry, like a fake poem that is like your fantasy of what it is to be competent, rather than something that's deeply truthful. If you see what I mean, yeah. yeah. So like mm. she talked about um, when everyone gets New Yorker fever and they want to get in the New Yorker. So they write something that they think will get them in the New Yorker, which is like a projection, a projection of what good writing is, rather than, and then obviously, if you're the clown that's thinking too much about the audience, you can't really clown. Mm -hmm. 
You've got mm. to be the freak. It's about a lack of self-consciousness. Yeah, yeah. you've got to tap into the... Expression. Why do you want to write a book? Mm. You have to tap into the grain of truth, whatever it is that you're trying to write, in a way not think about the reader. Obviously, yeah. you, you know, writing in language, language is inherently social. Mm. But, and, you know, as, as I said, you know, the book isn't not in a particularly normal chronology and it's quite strange in various ways as we've discussed with diagrams and whatever and um and now I would I think hopefully writing another book I'd feel more confident I had to learn to trust myself and that was really hard and actually reading that essay was a really useful thing it's like I'm writing writing the book for me and I have to be myself and, and do it in the way that I want to because that's all I can do I can't write someone else's book yeah or some weird projection of what I think people want to read that isn't really what I want to write. Yeah. Um, because what is that? I love that. You've got to be your own freaky clown. <laughs> it's, it's so true, though. Cause... You, know, what's, you know what's distinctively funny or whatever about whichever yeah. reader or person it is, you know? Yeah. The things that you your parents are like, why would you write this? Why would you write yeah. that? It's like, yeah. well, because this is I my book to... yeah. from my perspective. Exactly. This is how I perceive it. Yeah. And that's okay. You've got to be freaky, yeah. right? <laughs> and I think it's fine. What I found amazing about one of the well, one of the many amazing things about your book is how you managed to write such complex situations and mm. such complex emotions about people. There's often like chapters where there'll be the coexistence of trauma and upset mm. with validating the labor and love that went into nurturing your existence, with the family unity dealing with issues of people being assholes, racism, but but and or pointing out the difficulties of being an immigrant family mm. in a rural village. On the other hand, there was real affection for many characters from where you grew up as well. Mm. And I think it's it's such a skill to allow that the complexity and all those different dynamics to cohabit in the same context, not to sort of cleanse out the complexity. Mm. You don't you you manage to tell a story that has so much so many threads going on like that. And I, I find that, you know, on the, on the one hand, sometimes you're happy, but also you're really tired, but also you like the person from the village, but also some other person from the village is being an asshole, And you love your mother, but also you really want your parents to just leave you the fuck alone. Like, you know, this, <laughs> yeah. you know, you manage to capture the real rich complexity of, of life. And I think that's so hard. Mm. And relationships, classic dickhead behavior it's more of a comment than a question but um (laughs) (laughs) how was it what was it like writing about people that Um, you really know yeah that's the thing that really fucked my head I guess I was like because I come from such a small village Mm. people would read this people know like who they are and I was like I had to change a lot of the names for privacy right but I still feel they are very like you can you can if you know, people who live in my village knows who's who. Like, they'll probably be able to point it out. <laughs> a lot of like locations have changed as well, and that's what like freaks me out a little bit. It's like, oh god, these people are gonna read it. It's like, oh, I hope they like it. But in a way, it was really fun. It was almost like fiction, but it wasn't fiction because these are people I knew. When I first started writing the book, I had an insane amount of post-its on my wall. So it looked like, you know, when you have, um, when you're trying to, like, an investigation, you try to solve a crime and you got all these, like, 
ropes coming off everywhere and it's like pictures that's what my wall looked like I looked like I was trying to solve a murder mystery like a murder case I love that you are of your own life yeah of my own life so I had all these (laughs) post-it notes I would like chop and change and move and like the recipes and chapters and the characters so I had one wall for uh, one more for characters actually and one more for the chapters and what we'll cover and one more for recipes but yeah the character section I really wanted to um just make sure that the like the core people were there other than my family but the people that was like reoccurring characters like uh the front of house like other counter staff and the delivery drivers and regular customers um, I think it really helped having the customers because each and every customer that we had was such characters and they were exactly like that and I think that's the beauty of coming in um a small village where there's not much going on, but it's like, it's the people that really make it. Mm. You know, we had this loyal customer uh, who I love. Uh, they call like, my mum doesn't actually know the name, but we call her the bald rice granny <laughs> because she would always come in early with her husband and they'll come a half an hour early and they'll wait by the door for us to open. And they'll always have like a small bald rice and a beef curry. And, you know, I'd always let them in, sit on this, like the bench before, because uh, it's, it's really cold sometimes and I'll just chat to them for a bit. Or, you know, you get the drunken guy who would always order a steak and he was really racist and horrible. You know, it's just all these characters that have just stuck in my mind. And they just, in a way, they're so easy to write about because they almost write themselves because of the way they are. But yeah, it's funny people ask you about whether stuff is fictionalised because yeah. it's like sometimes like sometimes the truth like, is, is true? better. Yeah, mm. but no, they're all completely real people that it I know. It sounds like you had some good, in a way, writing devices in place yeah. to help yeah. you write it as if, it, to give you that freedom. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. To, to, and to write it in a way that felt truthful without mm. people losing their right to privacy, as you said. Yeah, say. exactly, because like privacy was such a big thing and I was really, really worried about it because you know I I wanted I make sure everyone um were okay with it as well and obviously tried to change as much names as possible to make sure I think that's the thing I worried about was just people being able to like track where we lived or like I mean with the business it's like you know we used to be on like Google so you'd be able to like find us and stuff but um now that there's another Chinese family um so yeah I think privacy was such a big thing and I worried about that maybe yeah. you should do some fiction next. <laughs> it sounds like you've got the skills for plotting Absolutely, and I don't think I do I, feel like I don't yeah. even know I don't know if this is on the cards but I would really love to watch a TV serialisation or film of your book oh, can you imagine <laughs> thanks so much to Rebecca May Johnson and Angela Hoy for allowing me to record this Their respective books, Small Fires and Takeaway, are both out now, and I can't recommend them both highly enough. You can support Lekka on Patreon for £3 a month, and you get access to a bonus episode every month. This month includes some extra bits from this conversation and the others that I'm releasing this month, specifically around recipes and their role within personal writing, which is something that I'm really interested in and kind of excited about exploring in that. It's going to be a great listen, if I do say so myself. So make sure you sign up if you'd like to hear it. LECA is entirely listener funded, so Patreon subscriptions are really important in me being able to continue to make the podcast. 
Rebecca was actually a guest on a very early episode of Lekker, way back in 2016. And in the episode, she talked about the tomato sauce recipe, which she writes about cooking over and over again in small fires. I went back and listened to it again myself recently, and it was really cool to hear kind of the early gem of that idea taking shape all of those years ago. I'll link to it in the show notes if you'd also like to hear it or to listen again. Music is by Blue Dot Sessions, as ever. Thanks to Ben McDonald, who is Lekker's resident illustrator. You can see his work on the Lekker Instagram and Twitter, at Lekker Podcast. There's two more episodes to come this month around this same theme of how writers approach telling personal stories through food. Make sure you subscribe to listen as soon as they're released. And I'll be back in your feeds very soon. Thanks for listening. <laughs>